Good morning. Happy Father's Day. I echo what uh, Melinda said. We honor you uh, wherever you're at in this journey of uh, fathering. I was thinking a little bit earlier today, so my oldest son is about 10 years older than my youngest son, and I always thought my youngest son had a father, a lot better father than his older brother did, because, uh, you know, over 10 years you mature and you grow and you develop, but like wherever you're at, God is gracious. He shows up and, and he, you know, so just my encouragement, keep leaning into him wherever you're at on this, this journey. And I want to pray for you today as we, uh, we honor you. So uh, let's pray. Father, on this day where we celebrate dads, uh, we give you thanks for our dads as we remember them and uh, the part they played in our lives. And God, we know that none of them were perfect and some were far from perfect. But God, we thank you for them. We thank you for their role in our lives and how they shaped us, how they influenced us. And God, as we think about the, the dads here at this church, we are so grateful for each one and the part they play to nurture and, and care for and raise up the next generation. And God, we ask that you would strengthen and equip each one to do the work of fathering, um, powered by your love and uh, following the model that you set for us. And think of some of the scriptures that give instruction about this this. this job of, of fathering. I think of Ephesians where uh, Paul tells us to the fathers that we wouldn't provoke our children to anger, but we could, that we would bring them up in discipline instruction of the Lord. God, would you help each dad to be about that? And uh, yeah, that uh, we would really be cultivating, nurturing uh, your truth in, in our kids. Think of the Deuteronomy passage and, and just this, this picture of uh, teaching the word diligently to sons and daughters and and talking of your ways as we sit in our homes, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up. Um, Father, would you equip dads to to be about that and to do that, that the life of Christ in them would be uh, growing ever deeper and, and it would just spill out into everyday life as they parent their children. And God, I pray for each, each dad in this room that you would help each one look to you as the model and the source of what they need, uh, a source of strength for this task of, of fathering. And God, we have just sung that you are our good, good father, and yet we know that for some, uh, the idea of father and goodness is not something that uh, easily goes together. Uh, we understand that. For some, dad was harsh or absent or, or for a host of other reasons. It can be hard to think of you as a good father, and yet, God, that is exactly who you are. And so we pray that you would help us in an ever-deepening way understand that you are good in all the senses that a father should. Would you help us to understand that that you know us completely and you still love us fully, that we are secure in your love. There's nothing that can separate us from your love. God, you are full of grace. You are full of mercy. And when we fall down, you pick us up. And we're thankful for that. Thank you for your that you care passionately for each one of us and that you are indeed a, a father who stands before us with open arms at all times. And we thank you for that. We're also grateful, God, that you are communicating, uh, Father, that you have communicated wisdom and truth to us through the word. And, and we pray now that, that, that you would speak to us uh, wherever we're at, whatever we need to hear today uh, as we look at this passage, God, that your spirit would lead and teach in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I read a book called Boys in the Boat. Uh, some of you maybe have read it. It's, it's a story about a uh, Washington, 1936 Washington 
crew team. Um, you know, when we think about a sport like crew, it's often we think about kind of the elite schools, right? Ivy League schools, typically they're the ones that have the best crew teams, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, these kind of things, not Washington. And yet this team that was put together with kids that grew up on farms or in logging towns or kind of in shipyard areas, uh, they became America's Olympic team and they won the gold medal in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And here's how the author Daniel Brown, and this is Daniel Brown, not Dan Brown of uh, the Da Vinci Code fame. This is a different author. But uh, this is how he explains how eight individuals of varying statures, physiques, and personalities can capitalize on their diversity. He says, crew races are not won by clones. They're won by crews, and great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. And so he takes some time to talk about the kind of the physicality of and different statures and how you have to work to have those things mesh. I mean, some are taller with longer arms, and, and yet you have to, the oars have to hit the water at the same time, and your stroke has to mirror the others. And it takes a lot of work to get the physical differences to work together. And then he goes on, and he, he describes how a good crew doesn't all have the same personality types on it. You need diversity there. And so he says good crews are good blends of personalities, someone to lead the charge and someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow all of this must, must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, accept it, and accept the others as they are. And he says this, it is an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. And honestly, I didn't like know anything about crew or find it interesting, but it is pretty cool when he, when he describes what this takes. And I think his description of what, ta- what it takes to have a good crew team says a lot about what it looks like to have a church living on mission like God wants us to be. Like a good crew team, we are not a bunch of clones. We should not be a bunch of clones. We're not designed that way. Uh, We have God-designed diversity, diversity of spiritual gifts, diversity of personalities and passions and, and background and experiences, and somehow all of this must mesh together. And it's an exquisite thing when it all comes together in the right way in the church. For a crew team, that puts them in the best place to win. For a church, it puts us in the best place to be and to do who God wants us to be, to be on mission in this world. Today, we're looking at Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 12 through 18, where, where Paul addresses some things that, that are about helping us this all mesh together, our diversity, um, so that we could uh, be effective in our mission of proclaiming Christ. And so if you want to turn there, Philippians 2, 12 through 18, the, the scriptures will be on the screen as well. You notice in the start of the first verse there, it says, so then, some translations say therefore. And so Paul is closely connecting what he's talking about here to what he has just talked about. And what he has just talked about is the humility of Christ. He's urged them to have the humility of Christ, right? The one who went to, who lowered himself even to the point of death on a cross, but who was also exalted. And so in light of that model, who Christ is, He says that we should work out our salvation by preserving our unity. Verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We see Paul's warm affection for the Philippians again here. He calls them my beloved. 
And uh, we see him affirming them, right? He, he's consistently affirming him, them in this, this book, but he does have uh, some concerns. They, they have a track record of obedience, but he's calling them to continue to walk in obedience whether he is with them or not. Uh, as we think about parenting on Father's Day, we've all had that experience of when we're in the room and we've told our kids to clean up or whatever. They're busy at it, but we step out of the room and they get busy playing or whatever, right? Paul's saying, I don't want you to be like that. I want you to, to obey whether I'm there or not. Specifically, Paul urges them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is clear and he is consistent in his writings that salvation and a right standing before God is is totally a gift of grace. We don't earn it. We cannot earn it. We simply receive it by faith. And so what does he mean when he says that we are to work out our salvation? I believe that Paul is saying we are to work out what is true of us already. In Christ, we are saved people. We are to work out that salvation. It's very consistent with what he said back in 127 where he said to to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I think this is a very similar kind of idea. We are to live out who we actually are. And we're not passive at this. I mean, we are to apply great effort. We are to work it out. And he says we do so with fear and trembling. You know, we, we just sang about God being a good, good father, and Dalton kind of raised the point how we can kind of swing in different ways in terms of when we view God. And so he is a good, good father, but he also, we should uh, work this out with fear and trembling when we understand who he is. Again, when you think of the context of what he has just talked about, Jesus Christ exalted to the right hand of God, who's been given a name above every name and to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess he is Lord. Fear and trembling is appropriate. And by that, it's, 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 I think it's a kind of submission and humility to him that he's talking about here. When we rightly understand Christ, humility and submission as we work out our salvation is only fitting. We can work out our salvation because of God's activity in our lives. Verse 13, he says, so work out your salvation for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The activity of God in the individual, but I think he's also saying the the activity of God in the church, it's God's activity that would enable us to obey this command to work out our salvation. When when he says that God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, he's saying he works at the level of our desires, our want to. God is at work giving us desires. And I, I believe those desires, the moment we trust Christ, they are implanted. It's the, the new man, the new person that we become. And so, so he works at the level of desires, but, it, but it's both to will and to work. And so he also works at the level of an enabling and empowering us. God dwells within us in the presence of the Spirit, enabling us, giving us power to obey him, that we might actually do what is according to his good pleasure. When you think about this, God at work in us, that is actually kind of an amazing truth, right? That God is at work within us. Sometimes we can feel like I'll just never be able to obey or we see how our desires just so often seem to run contrary to what we know is God's will and, and we could feel so weak in all of this. And yet there is a deeper truth. God is at work in you. The level of desires and the level of enablement. And that is true. 
we can mature and grow. We can work out our salvation such that we do what is according to His good pleasure. It is a lie that we cannot obey because of God's work in us. Now, how this happens, I don't think it's like a you know, bolt out of heaven where He just sort of strikes us and boom, you've got the desire and you've got the power. Uh, I think the desire is implanted the moment we trust Christ. But I think that, that we cultivate that as we stay near to God, as we grow close to Him, as we pursue Him, as, as we're in the Word, as we're immersed in thinking God's thoughts and, and staying close to Him in all the ways that we can, prayer and fellowship in these ways. I think those, those are ways that the, the desires are cultivated and the, the, the power, the enablement of the Spirit working in us is sort of activated. And so we do have a part. We're not passive. We work out our salvation, but God is at work in us. And, and and so it's, it's kind of this partnership. Paul says, work out your salvation. It's a fairly general command. It applies to any area of the Christian life. But then he kind of narrows in to a specific area of obedience for the Philippians and for us. And he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Again, he is affirming the Philippians in a lot of ways, but he does have a concern for them. And, and one concern he has is their unity. Um, earlier in chapter 2, he's talked about them uh, working to be of one mind, to be united in, in spirit in, in verse 2 there. Or you go to forward to chapter 4, and he's urging two women in the church that had some kind of conflict, Yudi and Syntyche, and he's, he's urging them to agree in the Lord. And so at some level, their unity is, is uh, being threatened, uh, and, and he's, he's urging them, he's commanding them to do all things without grumbling or dis- disputing because it's disruptive to their unity. Grumbling has the idea of whispering complaints or talking in secret against someone. Disputing means to quarrel or to debate in ways that are divisive. Now, we don't know what they were grumbling about. We don't know what they were disputing about. Uh, Paul doesn't tell us, but it's clear that Paul wants it to stop. He wants all things to be done without grumbling or disputing. They would not be working out their salvation if they were grumbling or disputing. This kind of spirit in the individual, in the church, the spirit, the speech would create disunity and would keep them from living out their mission in the church. It would keep them from meshing like a good crew. And so Paul urges them to stop these things so that they could live out their mission. Unity is a big deal in the church. Unity is a very big deal. When, when we become believers, we are all placed in the one family of God. And the one Holy Spirit is given to each one of us. We share the indwelling Spirit. We have one master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the night when he was betrayed, prayed about unity, right? John 17, Jesus prayed, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. I mean, when you think about it, if unity was what Jesus was praying on that night, if that was what was on his heart and mind, if that was what his concern was, how important is unity? It's important because as Jesus goes on in that prayer, our mission is at stake. He prays that we would walk in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. And so unity matters. It matters a lot. Unity is vital to living on mission. 
And this is exactly the reason why Paul is urging us to walk in unity. Work out your salvation that you may walk together in unity. Because we have a mission. And so he says, work out our salvation that we might shine as lights in the world. We're to shine as lights. Look at verse 15. Work out your salvation so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Paul wants us to live such distinctively different lives together that we shine brightly in this world, that we shine like lights in the midst of a dark world. By walking in deep unity, we, we prove, we reveal what is true about us, and that is that we are children of God. And he, and he describes the children of God, we are to be blameless, innocent, and above reproach. Blameless, we're to, to be free of guilt. Innocent means, it literally means pure. There's no mixing of good or bad. And above reproach means faultless before a watching world. As the children of God, we're to have this distinctive quality that, that we walk in this blameless, innocent, above reproach uh, nature, this unity that sets us apart from the world, which, God, which Paul calls a crooked and a perverse generation. See, here's the deal. If, if we are full of the spirit of grumbling or disputing, if that's what our speech looks like, there's nothing distinctive about that, right? I mean, that's the world around us. And so Paul's calling us to be very different, to share a kind of unity that, 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 that really looks different. People see it. It's like a light in the darkness. That is what he's calling us to be about. That is distinctive appearing as lights in the world. And, and we all know the world desperately needs some light, right? Paul's giving the Philippians, he is giving us a vision for who we are. We are children of God. We're to be lights in this world. Jesus said this, right? You are the light of the world and you're the city sitting on the hill. This is our calling. This is our purpose. As children of God, we are to be so distinctively different than the culture around us by our unity that we shine brightly in the darkness, helping others find their way to God. That's our mission. But Paul's saying that if we don't walk in unity, we will not be distinctively different. Now, in verse 16, he goes on to say that, that we'll be able to, to work out our salvation, have unity, shine as lights in the culture around us by holding fast the word of life. And the word of life is the gospel. It's the good news about Christ, Christ dead, buried, and resurrected, uh, Christ dwelling within the believers. We hold fast to that. We can walk this blameless, innocent, above reproach life in unity, having the ability to shine like lights in the darkness. You know, as we think about our calling to shine as lights in the world and the vital role that unity has, how are we doing with this, really? Are we working out our salvation such that we are demonstrating to the world around us that we are distinctively different by our unity? Faith is a unique church in many ways, um, we are not clones. Uh, we have a lot of diversity here. Uh, educational background, social economic background, theological, political. Uh, I mean, you name it. We have so much 
diversity about these things, differences. And I think what Paul's writing here impels us to ask the question, do we care more about unity and maintaining our ability to shine as lights in the world than we do about our differences? What do we care most about? I'm not saying our differences, whatever area that is, I'm not saying they're not important. Many of them are very important. And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about them. We should talk about them. But what I am saying is we need to be very careful to not let these differences disrupt our unity. Because unity matters so much. I would encourage all of us to seek God regarding this. Are you doing anything? Am I doing anything that is disruptive to the unity for which Jesus prayed? Is there any heart attitude? Is there any speech? Anything that's written that threatens our unity? As I've reflected on this this week, I have sensed God saying there are some things, there's some work that Brian needs to do about this. And I would just encourage you, if you, you feel any of this, uh, go to God, confess it, and ask for His grace and wisdom to be able to walk a different way. To walk in a way that cultivates and encourages unity because it's so important. We need to work out our salvation in a way that preserves our unity. And we need to do that because that's how we shine like lights in this world. As you come to the second part of verse 16 there, Paul gives a personal reason for the Philippians to work hard at what he's commanding them to do. And this, this personal reason, and in this personal reason, we see that we should work out our salvation that we might experience joy. He wants us to experience joy. That's possible. He's, and so he wants the Philippians to strive to do what he's commanding them to do. Hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ... I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This, this day of Christ, Paul is motivated by the day of Christ, this day when Jesus would return. He talks about in Corinthians that on this day, Christ will test the quality of each one's work. And Paul's work was proclaiming Christ. His work was uh, presenting uh, believers mature in Christ. And he worked hard at this. He uses these metaphors here of, of running a race and, and toilsome labor to depict his efforts. He worked hard in light of the day when Jesus would return. He didn't want his work to be in vain. In fact, he wants to be able to have reason to glory, and, and it means to boast. He wants to boast on that day, not about what he has accomplished, but about what God has accomplished in the Philippians. That's his boasting, because see, Paul understood it was God at work in them. He understood he had a part. God had called him to be a part of their maturing, their nurturing, their growth, but his boasting would ultimately be about what God was doing in them. And he worked hard at this. In fact, he was literally willing to give his life in this effort. He says in verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. A drink offering was a, an offering of wine that was poured out with, with a, a burnt offering or a grain offering. And when it was poured out, it was all poured out. There was none set aside for the priests. It was all poured out. And Paul's saying, even if, like that drink offering, I am fully poured out. If I am martyred, uh, if I experience that kind of death, he would rejoice in that suffering 
because if that's what it would take to help complete their faith, he would rejoice in that. For Paul, rejoicing wasn't something that he could do just like when everything was good and, and there was no suffering, there were no difficulties. No, he, he could rejoice in the midst of deep suffering if that suffering was leading to other people's maturity and their growth. And so he doesn't want the Philippians to feel bad about his situation. He is in prison. He is in suffering. He's rejoicing, and he shares his joy with them. And then he wants it to be this mutual thing. Verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So there's this command to rejoice. He's not just talking about an emotional response. He's talking about choosing to have joy and and not be downcast. The fact that he's in prison or by any suffering that they might be facing. When you think about what this reveals about Paul's life, ability to rejoice in suffering, it's actually pretty challenging, I think. I think for us, for me, uh, we certainly sometimes measure the quality of our life by comfort and pleasures and and things being easy. And those are when we we tend to find joy when, when it's all going good, right? And yet, here's Paul. His life is this demonstration of what it looks like when a person is living fully for Christ, for when, when a person is really partnering with God and what God is wanting to do in the world. When, that's what Paul did. And so in the midst of suffering, sacrifice, and service, because he was about those things and he was seeing God do stuff, he had joy. And, and it's challenging to, to, to think, okay, joy is actually possible at any point if I'm aligning with God and what God's wanting to do in the world, even if it means some deep suffering. We can have joy as we see the gospel go forward, and that's what Paul wants us to experience. So work out your salvation that you might actually experience joy regardless of what it costs. So we are to work out our salvation by preserving our unity so that we can be the kind of people and the kind of church that shines like lights in the world. And sometimes there is suffering and sacrifice that is involved in this. But if we care about the things that really matter, the lost being found, the immature being led to maturity, we can experience joy. It's an exquisite thing when it all comes together in the right way. When all our diversity meshes. That's when... We can really be and do what Jesus is wanting us to be and do as a church. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful for this passage and and this reminder how deeply you care about our salvation and that it will be worked out in unity that allows us to be distinctively different in the world around us. God, we're fully aware that there is a great need for us to shine like lights. And so would you help us? Help us as a church. Help us individually, God, to, uh, to really examine our hearts and, and where we're at and our motives and what we say and what we think, that, that we would not be doing anything that is disruptive to unity. God, would you convict us of anything that is there? And would you help us to lean into your forgiveness and your grace that we would walk a different way? And Father, for those things that, that are hard, that are difficult, and, and, and we experience some of that, would you show us how to navigate those things, how to talk about them in ways that are loving and kind and, and preserves unity and helps us move together? We need your grace for that. God, may we be a church that continues to live out the unity that Jesus prayed for so that the world may know 
that you sent Jesus into this world. He's the Savior. May we shine the light in a dark world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.